Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. And it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. Today, I'm talking with John Acuff. He's a New York Times bestselling author who for 19 plus years has been helping companies like Home Depot, Bose, Staples, and even the Dave Ramsey team tell their stories. He's a well-known public speaker and his blogs have been read by millions of fans around the world. In this conversation, we dive deep into John's sixth book, Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done, which is not only extremely entertaining, I mean, I literally was laughing out loud one night, but it is actually backed by science as well. And for you, the busy financial advisor who, let's be honest, likely struggles to finish things, trust me, you will appreciate this discussion. Here are just a few of the highlights from our conversation. Starting off, John shares, of all things, a story about him signing up for ping pong lessons and how it just so happens to demonstrate why the Western world's approach to goal setting is completely failing you. Later in the conversation, he blows the lid off some of the most common goal-setting myths, including why you should stop shooting for the moon. Next, we uncover some of the biggest lessons he learned from his three years working under Dave Ramsey and how that experience led to his eventual success as a speaker and author. We then discuss the publishing methodology that allowed him to become a New York Times bestseller and the guiding principles from his upcoming book, Finish. According to John, of the 90% of Americans who want to write a book, less than 1% actually do. John shares the biggest reasons most people fail and his secret to actually turning your book ideas into reality. Finally, John shares some incredible value for advisors on how to uniquely serve an audience while speaking at an event. You'll learn why people are motivated for different reasons, along with his tactics for staying passionately connected to serve those in the crowd. So in the spirit of our last show's guest, Pete Vargas, who gave away a ton of tools to implement his concepts, It looks like John's trying to one-up him as he's offered to gift you Blueprint listeners three different tools built around finishing your goals. All you have to do is hop out to the show notes and pre-order a copy of his latest book, Finish. And then from there, simply upload the receipt and the gifts are yours to have. They include number one, the Finish video course with John himself walking you through the concepts from his book. Number two, the Finish workbook for laying out your big goals. And number three, a dry erase finish board and marker for tracking your progress. All of this is available right at the top of the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 29. That's 29. Links to everything else there too. Books mentioned, people discussed, as well as a complete transcript of the show. One last thing. As I stated on the last show, we've recently finalized an agreement to feature our show's content in bi-weekly articles exclusively at wealthmanagement.com. The best part about it, I'm hand-selecting some of the very best ideas from 30 plus hours of interviews and laying out the simple steps to implement them directly into your practice. So if you happen to miss the latest column on how Ron Carson landed his first billionaire client, and most importantly, the framework to replicate it in your own practice, it's live out on our site now under the press section. The next piece on Joey Coleman's first 100 days concept to make sure you never lose a client again will be going live shortly. We'll be sure to send it out to all of you who have subscribed to our email list as soon as each article goes live. So if you haven't subscribed yet, you can do it by visiting bradleyjohnson.com forward slash subscribe. 
So that's it. And as always, thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with John Acuff. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I have special guest John Acuff, who is a New York Times bestselling author of five, soon to be six books. Welcome to the show, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's always fun when I have friends of guests. And so one thing that I like to do is always hit them up and text them. And I'm like, Hey, I've got John coming on the show. I've got my buddy, Jeff Rose, who knows you personally. I'm like, what sort of questions should I throw by John? Which is always a little bit scary, but fun, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes it more real. It's a realer interview, I think. Yeah. So I want to start here because what's fun is this leads right into a piece of your upcoming book, Finish. So I hit Jeff up. He's kind of, you know, he's a little goofy, you know, Jeff. So Jeff Rose, for you listeners out there of good financial sense uh, fame. And he says, make sure before you get done with the interview with John, that you ask him about ping pong and whether or not he believes this is a real sport. And I wouldn't normally start the conversation, but it leads into an amazing story in your new book that I wanted to make sure we hit. So let's start there. Yeah, well, it's definitely, I mean, it's in the Olympics. So like the idea of, is it a sport? Yeah. Is paddleboard yoga sport? No. Is paddleboarding? Not, not really. No. Um, but table tennis, definitely. I mean, it's, it's in the Olympics, like, and it, can it be played at a frat house? Totally. Um, but so can basketball and basketball is a real sport. Um, no, but the story, so my wife, a couple, uh, probably about two years ago, said, "Hey, you're a workaholic. You need to get a hobby." Um, and I said, "Well, I love ping pong. Um, growing up, I always played it." And so I went to the Team USA site um, and googled certified coaches. There's only two in Tennessee, which is the state I live in. And I emailed them both, and one said he would evaluate me to see if he would train me. So we ended up training. Um, it ended up being kind of super awkward because the first time we went to a college to play where he worked and the college was locked. So we just stood in the lobby for like half an hour. And then he had me hit a ball against the wall in the lobby. And then we played in the lobby with no table. So like imagine a college I don't attend. Me with a six-year-old um, like Asian grandfather like in a sweater vest hitting a ping pong ball. Like it was super awkward. We played four times and we never played a game because he said I wasn't ready. And my wife eventually said, you found a way to turn a hobby into an act of workaholism. Like, why can't you just play for fun? And you're right. It ties into the book because a big part of what we learned about finishing goals is that fun goals win. Um, Unfortunately, our culture believes that something has to be miserable to count. And that's kind of our Western approach to goal setting. And it usually fails. For those watching on video, John sent me a pre-release copy of his new book, Finish, which we're going to spend some time on here today. And the cool thing is you've also written a book called Start. And I love how you start the book out. You basically say, hey, you know, I thought I was really talking about how to help people get things done by starting things. But in reality, a lot of people start things and the biggest issue is they never finish them. Yeah, I got it half right. You know, I I kind of the other day I did a video on Facebook and I said, hey, with a thumbs up, click thumbs up if you purchased the P90X program and didn't finish it. And it was a wave of thumbs. So the the challenge, like 
starting isn't hard. I mean, there is that sense of like, I'm going to do it. Like I want the first line of my book to be amazing. Like I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a joke compared to finishing. Like anyone can sign up for a marathon, finishing a marathon, completely different experience. Mm -hmm. Anyone like can buy a stack of books that they're going to read and then put them on a shelf and never read. So, you know, that's what I realized was, okay, the, the start matters. It does, but it's nowhere near as important as the finish. Yeah. And here's what I love about the book. I'm speaking of finish. I just finished it this morning before this conversation and it's my first John Acuff book. I've ever finished. I haven't even bought any other books. I've heard about a lot of them, but you have a gift of taking a business book and making it entertaining and fun. And Mr. Steve Chan, your ping pong coach, I'm literally laughing out loud as I'm reading this, but at the same time, I'm thinking back to all of the goals I've started and not finished. They weren't fun. You know, it was like, I'm like putting myself through this misery just to complete something that I don't really enjoy that much anyway. Well, and that, the example I always use is like people say, I'm going to lose weight and I'll go, how? And they go, I'm going to run. And I go, do you like running? They go, no, I hate it. And I go, well, then why, like, why do you think you'll sustain that? Like my favorite extreme example is adventure races in our country. Like part of the reason adventure races are popular is because we want something to suck in order for it to count. And I like the joke I always do is like in the tough mutter race, you get electrocuted. Like, the rest of your life, you spend trying not to have live wires touch your bare skin. On Tough Mudder Day, you pay for that experience. And it's not like, because then you get a certification and you make more money or then like, then your grandfather lives. Like, it's just something we do. And I'm not opposed to those things. I just think they're a really funny example of like, we want it to be horrible. And then even if you look at the most popular goal setting technique of the last 50 years, it's SMART goals. S-M-A-R-T, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. Which of those words means fun? There's not even a word that's a distant cousin of fun. Like nobody goes, oh, my vacation was amazing. It was time-bound. I knew right when it would end. And so, especially from employers' perspectives, like I'm a big believer in making something fun if you want it done. The principle isn't have fun. That's garbage. Like I saw another entrepreneur say, if you don't love 90% of what it takes to be in your industry, you're in the wrong industry. And I was like, that's the stupidest thing ever. Like that means in a 40 hour work week, there's only four hours that you're frustrated. Like most people have a longer commute than that because they don't live in Topeka. And so you like the idea that you have to love everything or be like, it's budgeting season. Yay. Like, no, 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 no. I'm saying be deliberate about finding ways to add fun. It's not like when I talk to companies about fun, they go, well, we're not Google. We can't have a water slide in our lobby. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being silly. I'm talking about taking something that might not naturally be fun and finding a fun approach so that you actually do it. Spot on. So here's what I want to do for those. And I jumped a little bit ahead into the book because the have fun section, I think is chapter five or six. What I want to do is for those that aren't familiar with you, I want to back up just a little bit. Sure. Onto your story, because obviously a podcast for financial advisors, we've got a guy here that literally quit his corporate job. You were on Dave Ramsey's team for three years, four three years, years approximately before you jumped out and said, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to become an author. Mm-hmm. And so can you give us a little bit, just an overview of that story, what it was like to be on the Ramsey team, what you learned along the way that my Sure. Yeah. Um, I had a blog um, in 2008 that kind of went viral. So it got a lot of traffic. 4,000 people showed up on day nine. 
Um, people started sending it to me, not knowing I had done it. And it just kind of, it grew pretty quickly. Real quick. I want to fourth on day nine of your blog existing 4,000 yeah. people are on it. Yeah. And I had told, I told a hundred people and then it just went crazy and I didn't have a big Twitter platform, Instagram, anything like that. And so I um, ended up getting a book deal out of that, like a really small book deal. Um, and then I started to get some speaking offers and things started to pick up. And along the way, um, somebody on Dave Ramsey's team asked me to speak on the, at their Wednesday meeting. They have a Wednesday meeting where they bring in an author, a musician, a pastor, whatever. And so they allow employees to suggest people. So they suggested me. I came up, went really well. They offered me a position. It just wasn't the right position. Um, and so then I went back to Nashville, came up, I did it a second time, went really well, came up, I did it a third time. And the third time Dave was like, Hey, I want to show you, essentially, I want to show you how to do what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, whether you subscribe to his methods or not, you can't deny he's built a really powerful, robust, sustained personal brand. Um, mm-hmm. he turned a personal brand. They might be 700 people now. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a massive company. Um, and so the idea to kind of sit and understand that from his perspective was really, was really awesome. And so I spent three years there, wrote a couple books. Um, he really changed my ability to speak. Um, you know, I, the reason I'm comfortable on stage is because in the second month, he said, I want you to open up for me at my event. So I went to speaking from to 80 people to speaking 8,000. Wow. Um, now they certainly taught me along the way, gave me feedback. It wasn't like I was just like, okay. Like there was a lot of effort that went into it on their end and my end. Um, so did that for three years, did radio, um, had a lot of fun. But then eventually as an entrepreneur, I wanted to do my own thing. And you can't do your own thing in somebody else's company with their resources. Like eventually you have to say, okay, even if I'd be more famous here, even if there's different opportunities, I want to try it on my own. And I also want to be able to speak from a place of authority. Um, And so for me, it was never like, oh, I've got to be an entrepreneur because that's the only way. I mean, I work with a lot of companies who have entrepreneurial minded people there that are inside a big company. Like, I think you can do amazing work at big companies. I worked at Home Depot and Bose and Staples. and, And so I don't, you know, whenever an entrepreneur denigrates a big company, I think that's the dumbest thing ever. Like when somebody says, either chase your dreams or somebody else will pay you to chase theirs. I think you just insulted every employee you want to have. Like entrepreneurs who insult companies forget they're building a company and they're being idiots. And so for me, it was never about like, I got to be an entrepreneur. It's just, I want to try these things on my own. And I had enough platform and I live in a great city to do it. Um, and eventually somebody said, what's the story you want to tell your kids like that you played it safe or that you tried? And I'd rather tell the try story. So that was four years ago. Hmm. I'm curious, how scary was that? Obviously, Ramsey's an established brand. Sounds like you were kind of like the poster child inside of Ramsey. And then to jump out, that had to be scary. How'd you yeah, get through? I mean, it's scary, but you're, it's deliberate. It's over time. I'm not a, like when people say like jump, sometimes you have to jump and grow wings on the way down. Like, no, that's stupid. That does, that's not how any of this works. So I'm not a like step out with a crazy risk. I mean, the people you've talked to, the people we know, if you look at a risky entrepreneur or a risky business person behind it is so many checks and balances, so much deliberate thought, so much intentionality. So I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't impulsive. Um, it was very deliberate. That doesn't mean it's not scary, but I, it's, it's one of the few things in my life that I can say in four years, I haven't regretted it once. 
Mm-hmm. Now, are there things that would be easier? There, there are. Like, I had a bus tour when I was there. Like, mine with finish, like, you will not see a bus for finish. Like, yeah. you have to be scrappier. I, it kind of reminds me, a friend of mine worked at a huge church, like a 10,000 person church, and then he started his own. And I was like, what are the differences? And he was like, well, when we did an event at the big church and I needed chairs, I called the chair department and they got chairs. He said, when I do an event, I, the first thing I have to do is go, Oh dude, like where did chairs come from? Like where, you know, like he had to do that. And I saw like, that's been really fun to kind of figure out, but that, you know, that's where you're nervous. Like, okay, I have to go get a publishing deal. Um, the challenge of doing your own thing is you need all these different faucets of money coming in. So you have to go figure them out. Like, when you have a big safe brand, like I don't have to figure out those things the same way. Hmm. It's interesting. There's a lot of analogies there. Obviously, this podcast is for independent financial advisors. Doesn't mean that people that work for big brokerage houses don't also listen. But I've seen that path a lot of times in our industry too, where they're working for the big box name and they're jumping out on their own. And it's scary because you don't have that big back office to support you. But also it's not community either. Like the biggest mistake is you have to fight to establish community when you're on your own. It happens organically at a company. Like when you're at a company and there's 50 people in your department, five of them say to you, Hey, we're going to lunch. Do you want to come? And you go to lunch. And that's, that's different when you do what I do, which is you have to very deliberately go, okay, like I got to, if I want this to happen, I got to put it together and here's how it's going to look. And so that's a big difference. I think sometimes. Well, let's transition into the book and I kind of want to run down an overview. I've got it laid out here in front of me, but I think something that can hit a lot of financial advisors just from getting how you've done it is your book is finished, but at the same time, in a short amount of time, you've finished six books now, Mm -hmm. which is no small task. I've got the manuscript of my first book. I'm going to say, man, like when you get to the editing process of a manuscript, I'm like, one guy said, you know, when you're 95% done, you're half done. And I was like, Mm -hmm that hits home right now. So I've got a lot of respect for somebody that's finished six books. With that being said, a lot of our clients, a lot of listeners, a lot of financial advisors have a book that they want to write, but stuck in that process. So can you walk through just even how you finish six books, which will probably flow right into a lot of the methodology of finish, but can you share some secrets to how you've got that done? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, it's very common. 80 to, well, 81 to 90% of Americans um, say they want to write a book and less than 1% do. So it's a very common goal. It's, it's, it's a very rare to actually do it. Um, for me, I think one of the biggest things you have to remember is that great new ideas are going to show up right at the end. And that's okay. So never write it like it's your last book. It's your first book. So a lot of writers get stuck right at the finish line because right as they're about to finish, 50 great new ideas show up and they act like they have to force them in that book. You don't like put them in the next book. Like, great. You've now got to start for the next book. So I think that's a big part of it um, is realizing that's going to happen. And no one ever feels finished. Like, that's the other thing. Like when people are like, how do you know when your book is done? It's not this moment. Like I knew this one, like I knew that this was done because it showed up in my mailbox. Like this is the real version. Like I have a box of these. And so yeah, I, like sometimes when we wait for, it's like, how do you know you were perfectly in love with your spouse? Like you, you didn't, you weren't like, oh, now we can, like, how do you know you were ready to have kids? Like you don't. And so I think those are a couple of the things that mess people up is that 
they keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, adding new ideas. I mean, speeches are the same way. The worst speech is the one where there's seven main ideas because the person acts like this is my one shot to ever speak and they shove it all in. And so I think that's the same problem. Are there any mental tricks that you have? Do you set a deadline as a date, but basically like, hey, this book is done here and I move forward or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple. There's one, I, I do have a deadline and it has to be real. Like if you keep moving it, it's useless. Um, I have accountability. Um, so I have the accountability of my editor, of my wife, of my friends. Like I have deadlines to make, um, you know, I have skin in the game. Maybe for you, like if you're, say you're self-publishing, maybe for you, what you need is, you need to spend some money to like, you need to pay, you need to advance pay a designer $500 to do the cover to force you to actually finish the book. Cause you're like, I'm not going to waste that $500. Mm-hmm. I don't like, so you, you know, a lot of times if you don't, it's like anything else. I find that if I give away stuff to people, they don't value it. They don't use it. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be a ton of money, but it like, so I've got a friend who's helping me with finances right now. And he, he said, and he works with a lot of athletes, a lot of executives. And he was like, I'd love doing this just for fun, but you need money to be motivated. And I was like, I think I do. And he said, okay, well, at the end of the year, we're going to, you're going to give X amount of dollars to this charity of my choosing. I'm like, that's fine. But like, I need some skin in the game. But if it's just you, nobody knows you're doing it. It's you with a notebook or a laptop. There's no date. There's no skin in it. Like you'll never finish that. Yeah. Yeah. You're so spot on there because I find the same thing. Mastermind groups. Why do people pay five grand, 10 grand? Part of it's the accountability that I paid this much money. I'm actually going to show up and be present. Yeah. And work on it. Whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, okay. So let's dive into the book here. You start with, I kind of hit the wrong ghost is what you call it with the start versus finish books. But then I love the very first chapter's concept is the day after perfect. So can you go into just your thought process there and what do you yeah. help people? Yeah. A lot of times when we want to do a goal, we want all or nothing. We want a hundred or zero. Like there are so many people right now, like that's why, like, cause the book talks about perfectionism a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people, like people understand perfectionism where like somebody who's a perfectionist often has a disgusting, messy car and you go, that doesn't make any sense. I thought they are anal and clean and organized. No, 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 no. They are. It's just, if it can't be perfect, they won't even start. So their thing is like, if I can't scrub the car with a toothbrush, I'm just going to throw old McDonald's in the passenger seat. Like it's, it's an all or nothing. Like we'd rather get a zero than a 100. So I know a lot of people. And so do you, that'll go, I don't have time. Like my goal is to run five miles and I don't have time and three miles doesn't count. So I'm going to do zero. And you go, but that, like three miles is way better than zero. And you go, no, 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 no. Like it has to be this number. It has to be this thing. And so what you see a lot of people do is they start this goal and it's daily, 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 daily. They miss a day and the whole thing falls apart because mm-hmm. it's no longer perfect. So the day after perfect is about admitting like it's not going to be perfect. Like here's an example. So I've been reading a bunch of books. I read 10 books last year. This year I'll read 156, which is three a week. And the average American reads one a week average CEO reads 60, um, not one a week, uh, one a year, the average CEO reads 60 a year. So I yesterday broke my streak. Let me say yesterday was the 10th when I'm, when we're talking. So I, I had, I'd read a book 23 days in a row and yesterday I didn't, I didn't finish a book. And like today I'm still going to read 
Like I don't like my goal was 30 days in a row. I didn't hit it. Like that's all right. Like today's the day after perfect. I'm still going to read. I'm still going to pick up a book. I'm still going to work through pages. So that's a big part of it. It's just admitting it's not going to be perfect. Get over that. Um, and you know, what was interesting with this book, we, we did a huge research project. The day most people quit their goals is day two, not day 15, not day 20. It's day two because that's when the work shows up. Day one is exciting and full of hype. And day two is you actually have to do the diet. You actually have to do the miles. You actually have to write the book. And so it's not going to be perfect. We might as well know that and plan for it than be surprised by it. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting, and you talk about streaks, and at the same time, I also see it with our clients where one thing that we help them do a lot of is create their own proprietary planning process so that they can more easily communicate to their clients how they can help, right? Sure. And what I find a lot of times is it's not perfect, therefore I'm not rolling it out. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I, we sometimes use the analogy, it's kind of like software. Nobody rolls out perfect software. They roll Apple out versions, right? Yeah. And, Apple and you, doesn't. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that applies to not just the process of getting there, but also the process of the end product as well. Sure. Okay. So from there we go to cutting your goal in half, which I think is going to make some goal setting gurus out there, like pull their hair out, but explain what you mean there, because you've got a great methodology behind that. So I would say that part of the book's kind of subversive nature is to take what we always say about goals and then to test it to see if it's true. There's like, this isn't the first goal book that's ever been written. There's a billion of them. Um, and there's so like, go to Instagram and type in motivation, like, and it's going to give you a ton of sayings. And so one of the popular ones is aim for the moon. Cause even if you fail, you'll land amongst the stars. And so the belief is, okay, if your goal, say you, you can really probably only lose five pounds, but you go, no, I'm going for it. I'm going to lose 10 and you try and you lose eight, the thought is, uh, I'll still I'll still feel good about eight and I'll still keep going on. But you won't. You failed by two. Like the psychology doesn't work. It's kind of like one of my favorite things that happened when I was with Dave is that Dave is a huge guy, huge believer in like, if you have 10 debts with 10 different interest rates, pay the smallest one off first, get that debt snowball. Like he's a big believer in that. And he's always been a big believer in that because he is very intuitive and knows that's how people work. So the math doesn't work. Mathematically speaking, that's the wrong way. You should pay the biggest percent. Da, 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 da. But Time Magazine eventually did a study and said, like, Dave, Dave's right. Like, we, like, if we were robots, the right way would be pay the highest percent and move your way. But we're not. We're emotional and we get mm-hmm. distracted and excited and sad. And so it's the same with goals. So what I found is that people who set gigantic goals and then miss them quit. Like they, they just give up where I, so I had a theory that if I said to you, instead of doing 10, 10 pounds, lose five, like cut it in half, lose five. And my theory was if you lose eight, you won by three and you'll try again. Like my goal is to get you to do another goal next month. I care about this month, but next month matters even more because then you're building on it, building on it, building on it. Mm-hmm. And so people who did that, because again, we studied 900 people, people who did that were 63% more successful with their goals. So whenever somebody tells me like, oh, you should have a crazy goal. I just, I'll, I'm just going to say, show me your research. Like show me the study you commissioned. I'd love to see your background. 
And 99 times out of 100, they're going to go, well, I don't, I just like, I read a book that said I had the tiger and I had to go for it. And again, like, it's just one of those myths about goal setting that if you look at it actually doesn't work. Now the pushback to that should be, okay, I have a goal at work. I can't cut it in half or our company has some obligations, whatever. I think it reveals two things for individuals. It says you might want to cut your current goal in half for companies or teams. It says plan the right size from the beginning. I don't want you to ever have to, if you're a team, I don't want you to ever have to cut your goal in half. I want you to have a culture where people can be honest enough to say, Hey, I don't, this isn't based in reality. Um, Hey, this isn't. And you, I'm sure you see that with some of the people you coach where they'll go, you start to work with them and they go, I'm going to make a million dollars this year. And you go, okay, um, you made 170,000 last year. So tell me, like, I don't like any goal or plan that involves a miracle. Like at no point do I want to see your plan and you go, and then here a miracle happens, which quadruples our income. And you go, oh, so you just, you need a mirror. Okay. Like that's not a plan. That's fantasy and it wrecks people. So yeah, I think, I think it's going to be interesting. People will have a hard time with that. People will have a hard time with a number of things in the book. But again, I'm just going to say, fine, show me your research project and the study you, and then, and then they'll go, uh, and then it'll be awkward and I'll, I'll be right anyway. Well, and I don't know if we actually mentioned it yet. So your research, it was 900 and it was people that went through your 30 day course, correct? Yeah. So we, a researcher approached me from a university and said, Hey, I want to study what you do and see if it works which was crazy to me because prior to that, you can just say whatever you want on the internet. And a lot of, a lot of business books are narrative bias where it's, I had this experience in my life, so it should work for you. And that doesn't take into account somebody's skills, where they live, how they live, what their assets are. Like there's a lot of charlatan guru entrepreneur types taking advantage of people right now using narrative bias. And so he studied nearly 900 people for six months to say, this works, this other thing doesn't. This works, this other thing doesn't. That's part of why I'm so excited. You know, it's encouraging to hear somebody like you say, the book is really funny because it's also got a like a backbone of science. And so like, there's this, like if you do a Venn diagram, the book is like practical, scientific and funny. And like right in the sliver is what the book is. And I like yeah. that to me is fun. I'll share this because the reason I started with, a random weird question about is ping pong a real sport because I'm literally laying in bed last night reading that chapter about the Steve Chan story, your ping pong coach. And I'm laughing, but then I'm like, after I get done laughing, I'm like, that's actually a hundred percent accurate. Because if I look at, I've actually got my goals hanging in my shower. I got that from another, another oh, nice. big goal setter. So I laminate my goals. They're in my shower. I see them daily. And I looked up this morning and I'm like, Oh yeah, there's a reason that one's not checked off. That goal sucks. It's no fun. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's what's cool about the book. It's an entertaining read all the way through, but it's really good stuff. So as we move on, you mentioned choose what to bomb. Yeah, we try to do too much. Um, most goal setting books, again, like as we talk about like blowing up the myths, another myth is oh, you got a goal? Have a goal for each area of your life. You and I have both read a lot of the same books, and they all say, Oh, you got a financial goal, have a spiritual goal and a relational goal and a health goal. And, a da -da 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 -da. and you have seven main, most people say seven main areas. Mm -hmm. So I always say, okay, if you told me I'm going to learn German, I wouldn't say, oh, you should learn six other languages at the same time. Spanish, Swahili and Swedish, like, and Portuguese, like that. You'd say, no, that'll make learning German really hard. 
And so I'm a much bigger believer in saying, okay, figure out ahead of time, what won't you be good at? And then be okay with that. And then move on. Because otherwise, you try to do it all. It's kind of, in advertising, we used to say it this way. Like, if I throw you one ball and one idea, say my ad just has one idea and I throw it to you, you catch it. If I throw you seven, you drop all seven. It's not that you catch some, it's that you miss everything. And so good ads knew that, okay, I got to strip it down to this, strip it down to this, strip it down to this. Um, where if you try to do too much, you, you just fail. And we live in a, you know, I see people that are like, oh, I just work 90 hours a week. Or like, you know, I work 18 hour days. Like there's a lot of people that brag about like being a miserable workaholic. And that's, that's not, you won't, you don't create good stuff that way. So I'd much rather you go like, oh man, there's some things I'm just not going to be good at. And that's okay. And it's only a season anyway. Yeah. No, you've got a great story in there about a mom that during her busy seasons at work, she's like, I'm not folding laundry. So yeah, it gets clean, but it doesn't yeah. get folded. And the meals get made. They're just simple. They're hot dogs. They're, you know, you know, she's not making five course French meals like during a busy season. That's okay. Yeah, no, I think giving yourself permission to just let certain areas of your life not be great. Like you said, the lawn might not be perfectly cut with the manicure lines in it, but but it's my book. Yep. Okay, so we already hit on make it fun if you want it done. You also, you have a story in there about a financial advisor. So I figured we better hit on that at least. Ben Rains, and he talks about there's really two types of motivation. Yeah, he sees, and this is scientific, like he's just, he sees it from an antidote perspective, but people get motivated by fear or reward. So let's use personal finance as an example. I come into you and you say, hey, if I'm fear motivated, you need to tell me if you don't get your finances in order, your kids can't go to college and you're going to work till the day you die Mm -hmm. and you don't get to retire, you don't get to move to Florida or whatever. Um, if If I'm reward motivated, you need to say, hey, if you get your finances in order, you can get a, you know, a motorhome. You can get a house in Colorado and ski. You can get your wife an upgrade on the diamond ring that you bought when you were really young and didn't have any money. Like you put the reward out. And so different people are motivated by different things. And a big part of that is, especially for employers, making sure you've got the right motivation. So every employer in the world has had a situation where they had a great employee who was making mistakes. And they said, if you don't get your act together, like you're going to lose your job. But if they're not fear motivated, doesn't matter. Like they needed to say, if you get your act together, I'll give you an extra day home for work from home, or I'll give you this bonus, or I'll give you this incentive. It's the, the reverse is true too, where somebody's not reward motivated. I remember there was a girl I worked with and we were giving an orange iPod shuffle. Like this was back when the iPod shuffle was really cool. And they gave everybody in our, our team one. And she was like, ugh, like it's so ugly. Like what a dumb color. And she just wasn't, it's not that she was ungrateful. I mean, I think she was in that situation, but it just was that that wasn't her motivation. Um, She, you know, she needed a different form of motivation other than like she got a prize that was useless to her. So that's a big part of like the tension is figuring out which thing is motivating me right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see a lot of that. I think there's a goal setting app out there where you either set a reward for yourself if you do it or the fear-based version is like public humiliation. Oh yeah. 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 Like a photo of you, like with your shirt off goes out to your friends. Yeah. I mean, there's different tensions. So, um, but that's good advice just for financial advisors out there. 
if you're in your planning process, if you're focusing on statistics and numbers and data, but you're not focusing on the fear of not doing the planning, the emotional side yeah. or the positive reward emotional side to actually doing the planning. Well, if you're not, if, if data is not my language, it, more data just makes me listen less, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, just, I think sometimes in financial services, we do this all day long. We have the curse of knowledge where if you take yourself out of that world and you would go to the doctor's office and they just start talking in Latin, talking about human anatomy, you're, you're checked out. You don't no, even you're done. So, yeah. All right. So let's keep going here. I like the concept, leave your hiding places and ignore noble obstacles. You talk a little bit in there about, I think you had a basketball newsletter back in the day. Yeah. I just think part of the challenge is that it's not that we're not working. It's that we're working on things that don't matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's a hiding place. So it's kind of like, there's two things. One's a hiding place where it's clearly, this is not something that's going to help me. A noble obstacle is something that looks like it'll help you. So yeah, when I was, when I, you know, an, an example of that might be that, okay, you're a financial advisor and you get really passionate about fantasy football because you're a numbers person. So you just apply that strength to something that doesn't matter. Like you having the best research on a third string punter for the Chicago Bears, like it's ultimately useless. Like I'm not against fantasy football. Do that for fun. Just don't apply your best there. Where a, a noble obstacle is something you do that actually looks like it might be good. Um, and I would, I would even argue there are some parents, not all parents, there are some parents that use their kids as noble obstacles. And they go, I just, as a parent, like, I don't want to become a workaholic, so I better not start my own thing. Like, I'm trying to really serve my family. Where, like, let's be honest, if you got up at 6 a.m. an hour before your kids do, that's not, you working on your dream to be a financial advisor isn't hurting your family. If you, you know, if anything, you're giving your kids an example of if you work hard, if you care about something, this is what to do, here's how to do it. So I'm a much bigger believer in that versus saying, okay, um, like I can't do this. And that's what I call a noble obstacle um, is where you hide in something instead of doing the thing you're really supposed to do. And you see that happen all the time. Mm -hmm. The next one here is so pertinent to financial services. So use data to celebrate your imperfect progress. Yeah. Um, um, here's the, like, let me give you an example of the power of data. Cause I'm not a data guy, like by nature, like if you said to me, John, you're an author, our authors, data people, we're not like, I think a lot of us are very emotional, artistic, whatever. But my problem is that emotions are so inaccurate and they're such liars. So here's an example from the other day. Somebody on Twitter was like, I hate this type of tweet you do. You constantly do it. Like, that's what they said to me. They said, you constantly do it. And then they said, like, I miss the old John. Like, there's a couple of things I hate online. I hate when people say humble brag. because It's such a terrible way to shame somebody's joy. Like I get, if you do a real humble brag where you're like, just going to the, the gym today, like, or whatever. But like, if I go, I'm so excited that finished sold so many copies and somebody goes humble brag. That's not, that's a brag brag. Like I'm being excited. I hate humble brag. I hate when people hashtag first world problems because it doesn't change anything. And I think it's wildly insulting to people who live in the third world. So if you have an issue and go, our power's out and you go, oh, first world problem. People in the third world country hate power outages too. Like it's, it's such a, and, and nobody changes their opinion because you hashtag something passively aggressive or passive aggressively. Mm -hmm. The third one though, is when somebody says, I miss the old John or sigh. 
You should never type out the word sigh in an email or a tweet. It's the stupidest thing. So I was like, man, maybe this guy's right. Like maybe I'm constantly doing this type of tweet. And so I, I went back 40 tweets, which felt like enough. Like at some point you've got to go on with your life. And I had done that type of tweet twice in 40. So 5% of the time I had done that. That's not constantly. 95% of the time I wasn't doing that. So the, the, the reality of data is it tells you the truth. Like data is just your friend. Now, the problem we have with it is that it often ruins our ignorance and the whole ignorance is bliss. So when I go to a restaurant and there's calories on a menu, I might get mad at the data, but they were always there. I just, now I know them. That's not data's fault. So I'm a big believer in like when you work on a goal, having data so that, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about this. Tim Ferriss and 4-Hour Body is like, measure your inches, do your fat percentage, do all these things. We only do the scale and the scale won't always tell the truth. You want more data so that on the day you didn't lose weight, but you lost an inch, that inch will really matter. So I'm a big believer with your goals of being very deliberate. And I'm not saying have a huge chart. I'm not doing any of that. I'm saying have, you know, a list of, okay, I, you know, I ran 20 minutes today. I walked this, I did this so that when you feel down and you will, you can say, that's not true. I've been working very hard. Here's my data. Like, so I'm a huge, the phrase I say is, Data kills denial, which prevents disaster. Like data is just trying to help you. Um, we demonize it, but it's just trying to help you. Yeah, it's really interesting because in financial services, obviously you're dealing with numbers all the time. And it is surprising when it actually comes to running a business and the marketing side of financial services, how many advisors out there don't track their numbers. You know, they might run a public event and they're like, what was your ROI? I don't know. Or track their effort. Like, You know, they might go, we had a great event and you go, well, how much, how many hours did you invest? I don't know. Well, if you invested a thousand hours to get 50 people, like that's not, that's not a great event. Um, And the other thing is that tracking today makes tomorrow easier. So that if you, you know, if you have an email that goes out and you only have X percent of people that click, you might go, oh, that's terrible. Until you see, oh no, that's actually a percent higher than the last, the last month. But yeah, I think, you know, there's, you always see situations like that happen where somebody thinks something's making money and then you pull it back and go, like a friend of mine did an event and I had to break it down and go, Hey, you didn't make any money. And if a client had asked you to come do that event for that amount of money, you wouldn't have gone. But because it was your own, you got confused. And Mm -hmm. so I think you have to be really deliberate about, again, not, not tracking a thousand things because then perfection just gets loud again. And you can hide in the data. There's another hiding place. Like mm-hmm. It's like authors, one of the things authors do is they hide in their outlines. I just got to get the outline right. I got to get a perfect outline. Got to get my outline. And they think if they outline it perfectly, it won't be hard to write it. And so they never actually write. They're just like doing research, 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 research. They never actually start. And so I think that is the challenge. Yeah. We use a phrase around here, math over emotions. And a lot of that comes from just not knowing your numbers. Numbers never lie. That's the beauty of them. They're just numbers. Yeah, they're just numbers. They're not good or bad numbers. They're just what they are. And it's interesting when you look at successful firms, they're the ones that actually say, oh, when I did this form of marketing versus this form of marketing, I made more money because I actually tracked it. So I think that's a huge point you make in the book. And another point I love in that chapter, you have a Will Smith story where you talk about borrowing someone else's diploma. Can you hit on that? Because I think there's so much people can take from that. 
Yeah. Um, so the story, and it's a public story. Like I'd certainly, you know, it wasn't one that I, I was the only one who uncovered it. When he was going to move to LA, his manager at 21, his manager said, we need a goal. And so he said, I want to be the biggest movie star. And most people stop right there. Like they have this fantasy goal, they move on. Um, but they actually studied, okay, what are the top highest grossing films of all time? And is there a pattern? What's interesting is that everybody has access to that information. Like we all do. Um, like Warren Buffett has access to information that a lot of other people have access to. Mm-hmm. And so they found patterns where 10 out of 10 of the movies had special effects, nine out of 10 had special effects on a creature. And they started to really go, wow, these are patterned. And then when you look at Will Smith's most successful movies, the pattern lines up. Yeah. So for instance, Independence Day, special effects, creatures, love story, you know, Hancock, Suicide Squad, all of his most successful movies fit that pattern. And that's West Man, I was gonna look at the list and you just named them right off the top of your head. And that's that's where it gets interesting. So part of it is, you know, my big thing is you don't have to have had the experience to learn from the experience. So you can watch another financial advisor, you can watch somebody else and go, wow, like okay, here's an example. This I'd never seen this done before. It was really fascinating to me. So this 18-year-old like social media entrepreneur guy, you're verified on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can see when other verified people interact with you. Like it's the best benefit. So this 18-year-old verified like social media guy from like Ireland followed me. And I was like, all right. So I followed him and I get an automatic direct message. Um, and it's a direct message and it says, have a great week. But at the end, it's, it says Q-E-E-K, like instead of week. So I get a second direct message that says, Oh, my bad. I meant weak, not quick. That's crazy. So he put a typo in on purpose to make it feel less like a direct message because nobody like the average person who's not a marketer won't go, wait a second. Like nobody would put a error in a direct message on purpose. And he did. And so I wrote back to him. I was like, hold up. Did you put an error, like a mistake in there on purpose? And he's like, I totally did. And I was like, what? I said, what percent of people ask about that? He said, 5%. But it was one of those things where I'm not saying I'm necessarily going to do that, but I love the thinking behind that. The thinking of, I don't love direct messages that are auto. I don't want people to feel like it's just like, I'm just like spamming them. So I'm going to tweak it somehow. Like you can learn from that. You can learn, you know, that's what borrowing somebody's diploma is. Today I got uh, added to an email newsletter because I connected with somebody on LinkedIn. I hate that. Like, I hope all your listeners never do that. When somebody connects with you on LinkedIn, they haven't given you permission to add them to their newsletter. And, and a lot of the times, the people don't even have an unsubscribe feature. I have to block them or, or list them as spam, like, which I hate doing. Um, but I, you know, you can, one easy way to learn is like, what are the five things that frustrate you? And then do the opposite of that. Like, what did you not like about that? How can you as a business person make sure... Like an oil change, you can say, I really, you know, or like a restaurant. We went to a restaurant um, in Bar Harbor, Maine, and um, I'm going to do an article about it. Like it was a stand-up sandwich place. So you order at the counter, you wait for your sandwich. It took half an hour. Like a restaurant, restaurant, sit down, shouldn't take half an hour. And the problem was they were slammed. They weren't staffed right. But it's the summer in Bar Harbor, Maine. No, I'm sorry. It was in Freeport, Maine. It's the summer. It's your peak season. You as a bit like... If you're a financial guy, your April's going to be busy. Like you shouldn't ever be like, well, I had no idea. Like I didn't see it coming. Yes, you did. Like, so the next time you're like, so for me, the lesson there was, wow, I need to staff appropriately. And two, 
my wife said, well, the problem is they don't have incentive to change. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, all these people in here are tourists. They're never going to come back anyway. So the restaurant as a whole doesn't care. Like mm-hmm. if you have a bad, like John Acuff will never go back to that restaurant in Freeport because I won't go back to Freeport. Like, and the employees aren't commissioned. So they're like, eh, like who cares? It's like, there was a restaurant in uh, Blowing Rock, North Carolina, amazing view, terrible food. They have no incentive to change because you came for the view. So the food is going to be average. So all those experiences during the day, you need to take in and go, what can I learn? What can I learn? What can I apply? Like, how does this affect me? How can I serve my audience? Like, those are the things you need to think about. Michael Hyatt, mutual friend. One of the best, most simple pieces of advice he ever gave me is rather than trying to figure something out on your own, go hire a coach, whatever it may be, right? If you want to learn martial arts, if you want to learn how to market better, whatever that may be. And that's really a lot of what you're hitting on here is just borrow somebody else's experience as opposed to going through all the same mistakes they've already made yourself. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I meet a lot of people that want to start a business who haven't worked at that type of business. And I always think like, that's like, if I was going to open a coffee shop, it, it would behoove me to work at Starbucks for six months. Like, even if my coffee shop's going to be different, it's still making coffee. So imagine the thing, and I'd get paid. Like you get a paid education and get to figure out a bunch of stuff. So I'm a big, but like, but the problem with that is it takes humility. Like, yeah. it takes patience. Um, you know, it's easier to want to start your own thing than it is to learn for a few years from somebody else. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the stuff I learned, I learned working with Dave Ramsey for three years. Like I can't take credit for it. It was that, wow, I saw talented members of his team do it. How would I do it differently? How would I do it the same? What would that look like? You know? While we're on that topic, what was one of the biggest lesson, two or three lessons that you took from Dave, just looking at the organization, the scaling, the personal brand, anything that sticks out? Yeah. I mean, I think one of them, and I'd heard him say this a couple of times, um, I think there's a couple. One is that people would always say, how do you balance your life? How do you balance your life? And Dave would always say, there's no such thing as balance. Like he would say, when you train for a marathon, you run more than you would other times of the year. That's out of balance. And so I think that really helps me with like product launches. Like when I launch something, like it's going to be out of balance and that's okay, but it's a season. Um, So I think that was a, that was a big one. Um, And then also like staying passionately connected to content beyond where you might naturally be connected. Like Dave has told his story for 25 years and you know, he's still honestly connected to it. Like when you hear him tell the story, he's still connected from that feeling of being bankrupt. Like it's the same thing with like, how does you two sing the song one with passion? Like, cause, cause they do, but they, they're tired of it. Like they've sung that song a billion times. And so I think, finding ways to stay passionately connected to your core message. And then like, then I think the other thing is knowing who you're serving. Dave's really smart about knowing his audience, knowing who he's serving and how to serve them. Um, He doesn't go off brand very much. Um, Like he's really deliberate that way. And so, yeah, there are a bunch of things like that, that I could say, Oh yeah, that that's where I figured that out. Like that's where I learned that. That makes, you know, that makes a ton of sense. John, I'm curious because you, I mean, you do lots of speaking throughout the year. A lot of that is repeats on a book that you wrote and the message from that. Do you have ways that you stay passionately connected to your content? Like the YouTube example, I've sang the same song over and over. It's tough yeah. to get hyped up for that over and over. Well, I mean, a big part of it is 
you try to personalize it for the audience. So part of your goal is that you have a sense of, wow, these are healthcare professionals in the toughest healthcare time we've had in a generation. What do I, you know, or, Hey, um, these are teachers and, you know, you have kids who are being taught by teachers just like them. How do you connect? So I think a big part of it is it's never, it's never the exact same speech. And if it is, the audience is going to tell and they're not going to like it. There has to be a degree of I'm relating and I'm not trying to mimic them. Like I've never been a chimney sweep. If I go to a chimney sweep event and act like I get it, I'm just like, you No, I'm not like I'm not. So I think serving the uniqueness of the audience helps me stay connected to like, okay, like what would I do differently here? What do I need to change here? Like that's part of it for me. So let's dig in a little bit there. Cause I find that a lot with financial advisors. They go give the same public event, the same content, the same speech over and over. And sometimes it's tough to get up for that. Are there certain things you do before you go out and give a speech to get familiar with the audience or to learn more about what their motivations are that have worked for you? Totally. I mean, a big part of it, and I write about this stuff. I have a speakers list that goes out once a week and it's probably, I don't know, 7,000, 8,000 speakers. And it's just acuff.me slash speakers. Um, and so like I call the client every time I speak, I call the client and I ask questions, ask questions. If I'm doing multiple events with the same client, I try to go on site. So for instance, I just spoke to a company four different times, four different groups within the company. And I went to one of their training sessions and I didn't stay all day. I stayed for an hour, but that hour fast forwarded my understanding of like, Oh, that's, that's who they are. The other thing is that like you stay motivated by hitting your marks. Like your time is a mark. Like you should hit that. Like, Event planners hate when you go over. You should know, okay, they gave me 40 minutes. I'm going to go 40 minutes. Like That's a mark. Um, you stay motivated by trying to get jaded people engaged. Like Make a goal of, I want the sound guy to get something out of this. The sound guy has heard a million speakers. How do you make him laugh? How do you make him engage? How do you, you know, that that's where you kind of, I think you find different ways to make, like, I mean, that just makes it fun. Like, that makes it fun. Um, and the other thing is you find new ideas. There's always new ideas that show up. And so that connects you is where you go. I, there'll be times where I've given the same speech 50 times and I get a new joke like on time 51 and you go, oh man, like where's that one been? It's just you're thinking differently and your brain said, hey, what about this? And so those are a few of the ways that I feel like I try to stay fresh. I feel like one of your strengths, what's interesting, this is, we met briefly at a book launch, but this is the first time we've had a conversation. But the one thing I can say about your social media presence, well, that's one of your skills and just maybe it comes natural or maybe you work at it. I feel like you do a great job of connecting because you just, you're comfortable in your own skin, I guess would be the best way I know to put it. Are there ways that you take that to the stage where here's a good way to create connection with the audience right out of the gates where I, where I'm not dealing with the people that are just sitting there checking iPhones. Do you have different tips to do that? Oh yeah. 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 So I was trying to see if I had my note. I don't think I have my notebook with me. I like, I'm very deliberate about social media. Like I keep, you talk about data, like I keep track of it like a maniac, but as far as a speech goes, part of your job is to close the gap between you and the audience. So when you're on stage, they're already thinking you're different than me because you're on stage. I'm not on stage. Mm-hmm. So I find that being honest about situations where it didn't work helps me connect with them. 
Like most speakers talk about things they won at or problems from 30 years ago that they don't care about anymore. Um, so I try to be honest about like, Hey, here's this thing that just it blew up in my face. Like it, it didn't go well. Like, and I wish it did. And not in a fake way. I hate people who use authenticity as a, like, as some magic wand. And they're like, I'll tell you the worst thing that ever happened to me. And like, it doesn't fit in the story. And it's just like them trying to pay a token to get into your, your life. And, but I just find that if I'm able to say, and in an honest way, like I said in finish, I have finished some things. Cause my publisher was like, you can't say you're the worst finisher because this is your sixth book. Like yeah. stop it. But there are, but I can honestly say, here's five things I didn't finish or here's things I wish I'd finished or here's my desire to be better than I currently am. So I feel like if you're honest about the story um, and will tell things that didn't work, people go, okay, like that's real. That's genuine versus people who just out of insecurity showboat. And I know speakers that do that where one-on-one nicest people ever, but they get on stage and they feel uncomfortable and insecure. And that insecurity comes out as arrogance where they're like, I'm better than you think. And it's just, it's the same, like, you don't have to be on stage to do that. Like I shouldn't need to tell somebody next to me on a plane who's a stranger that my last book hit the New York Times. Who cares what that stranger thinks? Why do I need to validate, oh, hey, I'm, I'm somebody. Like that's me living out of insecurity versus being authentic. Mm-hmm. One thing that drew me right in on the book that you say right out of the gates, it's a book about finishing. And I think your exact statement was, it took me three years to finish six days of the P90X program. Yeah, I'm like, I just love that he's being real. Everybody has these problems. Don't pretend like you're the only guy in the world that just finished no, everything. And I try to write from the trenches. Like this isn't me 20 years down the road going, I figured it all out. Like this is me going like, here's 10 things that make it hard to finish right now. Like what if we tried something differently and, and then kind of be honest about it. So I'm not, again, like I'm not trying to use authenticity as a way to like, trick you. I'm not trying to use my success. Like, I want to be honest about the success too. Like, I don't like when people only act like they fail. Like there's this weird sense where they want to try to be like you, like Elon Musk, for instance, Elon Musk. I've heard him say a number of times when I started Tesla or whatever, I had sold the company and I put all my money into it. I was sleeping on people's couches. I didn't have money. That's not honest. He could get a hundred thousand dollars of speech. Like, so he, he is no longer capable of ever being completely poor again, because even if he lost everything, Tesla blows up. Even if he loses everything, he just call, picks up a speaker's bureau and goes, Hey, I'm Elon Musk. Um, I love to do a speech. And they go, here's a hundred thousand dollars. So that's not honest. So I think one of the biggest things for an audience is, are you willing to be honest um, in a way that's helpful to them? It's not helpful if it's just an honest story but it doesn't help help the audience at all. I always say with speaking, you're not there to speak, you're there to serve. And once you figure that out, you go, oh, that kind of, that changes things. Mm, makes sense. I've never heard it put that way. That's a great tip. All right, man, if you're good, we're going to transition into some philosophical questions. Here. Sure, sure, let's do it. All right, cool. This is a fun one. This has become, I think, my new favorite question. Oh, nice. What is something you would like to see as absurd 25 years from now? Promposals. Um, I, I think those are stupid. Um, like complicated gender reveal parties. I think I think those are those are pretty dumb. Um, 
I'm trying to think like, there's a lot of terrible rappers right now. Like I would say 90% of rappers with little in the first name are terrible. Like, like whether you're little Yachty, little Uzi, little pump, like I think, I think we have garbage rappers right now. Um, so yeah, those are things that I would like to that. And then the mope culture, like mopey, like if you go on Instagram, it's very popular to be like, didn't get out of bed today. I love pizza more than it. Pizza is bay. Like, ooh, like it's a mopey culture. Like, I don't think that helps anybody at all. I'm trying to think what else I really Bro, So for advisors out there that don't know what a promposal is, please explain. What's that? Instead of just walking up to a girl and saying, will you go to prom with me? You have to get like a hot air balloon and a cookie cake and like fireworks and you have to film it. And it's have to like, like stuff like that. I just go, that seems really aggressive. Like for, and I just don't think it's healthy because it sends a message to every other kid. Like, well, now I have to do that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other thing. There's a ton of things. I'm like, this is the stupidest, like, I, I, you know, <laughs> outrage. I feel like you can just go on a rant on this one for a while. So feel free to. Well, keep- I just feel like outrage culture. I'd love, like one of my jobs as a parent is to teach my kids how to not be offended. Like mm-hmm. and the problem is I need to write about this. We all look at the internet through our own filter as if it's about us. It's not. So like I'll post, I'll, I'll like say I run a mile and this has happened a million times. I run a mile. I say I run five miles fine and say, Hey, Slow pace, but I felt good. It was only a nine, 10 mile, blah, 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 blah. People go, ah, that's like, for some of us, that's really fast. You shouldn't have said that. And I want to say, Carol, in Ohio, I did not know you existed until this moment. I did not sit down and go, how do I really insult Carol? That wasn't about her at all. And so like outrage culture where you don't do anything, like be outraged, just turn it into action. Like if you're mad about the president, if you're mad about social security or, or, you know, the underserved homeless in your community or race relations or whatever, go do something like tweeting. It does very, 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 very little. That's good, man. Yeah. What's the next one? Let's go with, uh, do you have a morning routine that you? Not really. Um, I know like some people love them. Um, so I think they can be helpful, but no, I, uh, I mean, I've gone through seasons where I have. But most, especially with the kids, my kids get up for school at 5.45 a.m. So like I'm not getting up at four to do some stupid morning routine that like a guru taught me. Um, So I have coffee. That's like my only morning routine. And I love when people are like, here's the 17 ways I start my day off right. I think that sounds miserable, dude. 17 steps to a great morning. I'm good. I'm good. So now like one step. I got up, I had coffee. I talked with my wife. I did a podcast. Like my every day is different. And that's true for most people. Like you don't have to be an author to go. Yeah. Only on Thursdays. do I have this one type of meeting only on Tuesdays. do I have this one type of situation. And so I think, I think morning routines are great. I think we turn them into an outline when we try to make them so specific, they protect us. And then when you get, when it gets broken, the whole system often falls apart. So speaking of routines, you obviously have to have some sort of a routine to write six books. Do you have a routine that's helped you crank through those? Yeah, the big one is, the biggest principle is writing is different than editing. I don't edit at the same time I write. So I write and I write quickly. And like when I need a quote, I don't go to the internet, look it up because I'll leave. I'll go look at Twitter. I write in caps, find quote. 
find statistics, find joke. Like, so writing is different than editing. When you sit down to edit, take your time, be more deliberate, whatever. When you write, do writing. So that like, that was a big change for me. That's a huge tip. When you edit, how painful is editing for you? Just out of my own personal curiosity. I mean, it's not now. Like on book six, I, you know, I sent a 60,000 word manuscript to my editor and she sent back 38,000 words. So like 22,000 words are just like in the wind. So now it's not as like certain jokes are like there are jokes that I'm like, I'm passionate about this idea. Like one of my favorite riffs in the book was about the challenge of buying a computer at Apple. Like, and I wanted, I liked that riff and I wanted to keep it. So like there's sections I care about, but editing overall, it's gotten easier as the whole thing I say is you have to be married to your writing and then be willing to divorce it. Like in the editing, like that's the tension and you have to go, this is a great story, but it doesn't help. So I got to get it. I got to let it go. Like that's kind of your, your back and forth. Yeah. Huh. Cool. All right. Two more questions. Great. This has been awesome, man. I, I love the conversation. Oh, good, dude. Let's go with your writer. So you write books. So I better ask you this question. What's the book that's made the biggest impact on your life and why? And then part two of that question, besides your own books, do you have a book that you've gifted repeatedly over the years? Yeah. I mean, like as a Christian, the Bible, but that's like the Christian answer. Um, I think the war of art by Pressfield um, is one that I've both gifted and really like, I was having a hard time finishing my first book and that book kind of pushed me over the finish line. Um, so that's been one that I've definitely gifted a bunch and I've definitely thought, um, wow. And then the other one I've gifted is, um, orbiting the giant hairball, which is about being a creative inside a big corporation. Um, it's beautifully designed. The author passed away. His name was, I think Gordon McKenzie, but that one I've gifted a lot too. Um, just because, it's hard and you have to be deliberate to survive creatively inside a big machine. And that's not that big machines are bad. It's just, it takes a different effort. Like 10 person ad shop versus a 5,000 person company. There's layers, you know, how do you navigate those? So those are probably the two. War of art has come up from a lot of people I respect. Is there, oh, yeah. one, is there one concept out of there that just really drove home with you? I guess the idea that fear isn't something to be avoided. It's a, uh, it's almost a compass. Like the natural reaction is fear, like flight, fight or flight. Like, Oh no, like this thing I'm afraid of doing, I must not be supposed to do it. And Pressfield's argument is no fear is a sign. It's the thing. Like it's the thing you want the most is the thing you care about the most. Don't run from that. Go engage that. Like that's a big, that changes how you kind of look at things you're afraid to do. Hmm. All right. Last question. What is the one piece of advice you can give the audience that's led to your success, John? I guess the old rules don't apply. Like we're, you know, we're living in the wild, wild west. Like the idea that, um, like what's an, what's an example of that? Like I know, I know somebody, she's, she's, a, she's like a distributor in a multi-level marketing company, which when people ask me, they go, do you like MLM? Do you hate it? I think it's like anything. It can be done really well with honesty and integrity. It can done, be done poorly. Like I know great financial advisors. I know people that aren't great financial advisors. I don't think the thing is a thing. It's just a thing. Like it's not got like good or bad with it. So she, in four years, she's, I think 34 now, um, her network, the people under her, and she shares these numbers publicly, but her network under her last year made 160 million. 
And like, you can't 50 years ago, that's not happening. Like unless like a hundred years ago, unless you're a Rockefeller, that's not a possibility. And I'm not saying you'll make 160 million, but I just think the old rules don't apply. If you want to hustle and figure stuff out, you figure stuff out. Like if my daughter wants to be a fashion blogger and, and do it because people send her free makeup, like she can do that. She has tools like she is. And so, you know, the idea that at any given moment I can tweet to 300,000 people, like that's unique. And the old rules would say, wait your turn. Like Seth Godin talks about that. Like it's your turn. And so the idea that like the old rules don't apply, don't live against them. Yeah. The internet leveled the playing field. I mean, you yeah. could be running a company out of your house right now. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I increased my email signups by maybe 50 times just by doing like being more deliberate about it. Like I didn't do anything special. I just was more aggressive about it. And like, so the, even the old rules of the internet don't apply. Like five years ago, somebody would say, Oh man, don't, don't you like have four regular tweets for every promotional tweet. Like, but now that's stupid because not everybody's seen every tweet. Like Mm -hmm. I spent two years telling people I have a book called do over and I still meet people like, I love your work. And I go, have you read do over? They go, never heard of it. Like it's just, they're busy living their life. So like the old, even the old rules of Twitter don't apply. That's what I mean. Like you've got to reframe it. So just as an aside here, because a lot of financial advisors are still stuck in what I would call traditional marketing, such as public events, radio shows, Mm -hmm. and they haven't made the leap to growing an email list and how powerful that is, even though they've got tons of emails from their past events. Just speak to the power of an email list for why financial advisors... It's the dumbest mistake I've made online. Like if I could go back... I mean, there's a new question for you. Like if you could go back 10 years and tell yourself something, what would you say? I would say... Now again, like love your wife more, your kids, whatever. Like taking all that aside, I would say focus on your email list. Like email lists, they're not sexy. They're not, they're not. They're like blocking and tackling. They're not, they're boring. They're, they're one yard gain versus like a Hail Mary. But like that matters more than anything. So like build your email list and also focus on Facebook. Facebook's not sexy either. Like Snapchat and Instagram and that, but like the one that performs is still email and Facebook. And it might just be where your aunt is, but screw it. Like that's where the numbers are. And so like, yeah, if I could go back, maybe that's their question. If you could go back and give yourself a thousand dollars to invest in something that wasn't stock, like I'm not saying like, Oh, I'd get involved with Tesla. Like, where would you put that thousand dollars? I would put it into email. Like one hundred, like all I'm doing right now is trying to grow my email list. Like that's it. And super like grow it and serve them. That's it. Well, and just, you've got the book coming out. My guess is you send one email like, hey, it's live. You can get it today. I'm guessing a few books get sold. Yeah. And so like, here's the thing you have to think. If you have 100,000 people on an email list, there are very few things you can't do. Like if a publisher says to you, we're not going to publish your book, you go, looks like I'm going to self-publish it. Tell my favorite audience. Like if you have, I mean, like that is power, dude. Like eyeballs and like it's hard. It gets harder because there's so many people in the space. But dude, if you if you had a million people on the email list, and say you had, say you had, I don't know, a three hundred dollar course, and if you had a million people, ten percent would be a hundred thousand. You're not going to sell ten percent. One percent would be ten thousand. Let's say you won't even sell that. Like, say you only sell, like if ten percent is a hundred thousand, one percent is 
10,000, say you sell 0.01%, that's a thousand people at $300. That's 300 grand. Like they're like, that's insanity. Like that you could turn on a 300 grand, like, and let's say you sell 2000 people, that's 600. Say you sell five, that's $1.5 million. Like, and it's because you spent the time going, okay, okay, I'm growing, I'm growing, I'm growing. So like email us, dude, it's the most important thing. John, this has been awesome. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for doing it. And I also, I know you put together a special gift for the Blueprint listeners as far as around your book, Finish. And if they pre-order, there's also a special gift that goes with that. Yeah, there's a video series. About that. We did a professionally shot video series that kind of amplifies the content in the book. Um, so a lot of people, like your audience, are like, I like books, but I love video. So we put together a special video series. It's only available until the release date. So you've got until September 12th. Um, if you go to acuff.me, acuff.me slash finish, you can get all the details. Um, but it's one of those things where there's a lot of people that want to listen or engage with a video. And this is like, like a, it's like pulling the slingshot back. It's a huge help to the book. Cool. We'll throw that in the show notes on our side as well. So Great. appreciate sharing that. So with that, John, I just want to say thank you for sharing your message with the Blueprint listeners. This is my first official John Acuff book that I've read. I'm a fan. So oh, nice. there's out there, I know one of the biggest struggles in financial services is with all you have going on, it's really tough to finish things. And so give John's book a read, go out and get it. And John, I just want to say, I've read a lot of business books in my career. None of them made me laugh like yours have while still teaching oh, anything. So great. I love your style that you bring. I love the passion. I love the voice you put in these. So thanks for getting us out there. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's fun. All right, John. Take care, bud. See you, buddy. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for checking out our latest show. Here's this week's featured review. This one comes to us from BTAY00, who says, Great, well-crafted, thoughtful content. Brad, thank you for your thoughtful approach to bringing top-notch speakers and thinkers to the financial advisor community. I really appreciate that your strategic approach to content drives creativity with non-traditional financial services conversations from time management to writing books. BTAY00, thanks for taking the time, number one, to drop a review out on iTunes. That means a lot. And one of my favorite things about the show is having the ability to chat with people who I admire and who intrigue me. And really, my goal is to be as curious as possible and ask them questions that serve you, the financial advisor community out there. So yeah, that's what I try to do. And um, if any of you listeners out there have ideas on guests who would make for great people to have out on the show in the future maybe that aren't in the traditional financial advising space, hit me up out on Twitter and let me know. You can find me at Brad underscore Johnson. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and who we should have that would make for a great guest on the show in the future. So that's it for this week's show. And for those out there who are loving the show and have another financial advisor buddy who could use some great ideas sent his or her way, do me a favor and hopefully them a favor and email or text them your favorite episode so far and tell them to give it a listen. I'd really appreciate it. With that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you on the next show. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.